It's made up of scattered homes, many boarded up, an aging ice rink, and a busy jail packed with binge drinkers. With no movie theater or downtown, children ride their bikes in packs around the town's now dusty roads well past bedtime. Hold up a second, Gus. Is that the new intro to the new Twilight movie? Believe it or not, no. It was an excerpt from a New York Times article called Drawn from Poverty, which was about the Inuit hamlet of Cape Dorset, Nunavut. And if it, all of it sounds a little sensationalistic, that's because it is. Let's get into it. Bias. Welcome to The Bias, where we talk about what happens to the story before it prints out. I'm Arno. I'm Gus. And today, Gus is going to tell us more about this opening that sounds like a Twilight novel. So this article is written by Catherine Porter, a white woman from Toronto who has no prior familiarity with the Inuit community, and it drew a lot of criticism from indigenous journalists throughout North America. So the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, called out the Times for straight-up lying when they wrote that Cape Dorset doesn't have a downtown. Really? And in fact does, directly across the street from the Arctic College. They also pointed out that kids biking late into the night was completely normal in Cape Dorset summer when the sun is out for 21 hours. Not some sign of societal disarray. The article's main subject, artist Ulusi Sila, told APTN that despite the article portraying her as a struggling young mother, she, quote, is not poor and never said anything about poverty. What? And the poverty that does exist in Cape Dorset is given almost zero historical contextualization. The article is quick to point out that more than half the residents rely on public assistance, quote, while conveniently leaving out the centuries of government policies and climate change catastrophes that have actively infringed upon the food sovereignty and political independence of the Inuit people. The Native American Journalist Association, NAJA, gave a training at the Times back in May 2019 about how to accurately report on indigenous communities. But clearly, their words were not listened to. The NAJA called the article harmful to the Inuit and laced with cliches. They even created a bingo board of stereotypes about indigenous people, with boxes reading alcohol, vanishing culture, unemployment, plight, you know the deal. And the article hit about half of the 24 items they listed. We counted. So what could the Times have done instead? Well, the NAJA suggested this crazy, outlandish idea of hiring indigenous journalists. Wow, that's such a radical idea, Gus. Left-wing extremism, what can I say? <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, this week we're going to talk with a publication that's actually thinking about these things, about who's the best person to tell a story and whether people should just not tell certain stories. That sounds like pretty crazy, so we uh, tried to talk and find that out. My name is Saima, Saima Desai. I'm the editor of Briarpatch magazine. And Briarpatch is uh, a national Canadian magazine of grassroots politics and social movements. We started 45 years ago in Saskatoon as an anti-poverty newsletter made by people on social assistance uh, who just wanted to disseminate information about 
issues with anti-poverty. And, and since then, we've grown into a, a national publication with readers internationally and stories internationally as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and Briere Patch sees its relationship to the audience in a way that's probably not common to many newsrooms. We don't see ourselves as just telling stories, but we see ourselves as struggling for social change. When we talk about the importance of someone telling their own story, um, it's about the ways in which we can use language to build a new world. Because I think that the way that we bring new worlds and new realities into being is by talking about them first, um, and then by publishing them, and then by pressuring politicians or building them ourselves through mutual aid. To me, that's, that's why it's important to help marginalized people tell their own stories, because I think allowing people to, to think about and articulate what it actually means for them to live a good life, a dignified life, a livable life, um, is one of the early steps in building a social movement. Wow, that sounds incredible. So how does this practically work out in the newsroom? So like every publication, Briar Patch has a pitching policy, right? Um, it looks pretty standard, except for one line that you need to read differently than you usually would. It says, tell us why you, with you italicized, are the right person to tell the story. What we're not saying with that question is that you can't tell all of the stories that you want to tell. Um, but I think it's it's more that you should, even if you're, especially if you're telling a story that um, is not about your own community or is a story about something that you have not lived yourself, um, you should be clear with yourself about the reasons why you're doing that. Are you doing it for money? Are you doing it to get famous? Are you doing it because you have a deep and long-standing relationship with that community or because you're hoping to begin a deep and long-standing relationship with that community because you're genuinely invested in other ways, uh, materially or emotionally or culturally in the success and safety of that community? Um, I think all of those are questions that journalists should ask themselves and that they're typically not encouraged to ask themselves. Yeah. And so what do you think of that, Gus? Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to rethink your intentions going into a story? All the time. I mean, last semester we had a class where we were all sent to report on different community districts in the Bronx. And I'm not from the Bronx. And there's so much mainstream media portrayals of the Bronx that are super one note, only portraying this very stereotypical um, side. And so I was, in every every time I tried to think, how could we... Um, you know, come into this with uh, doing as much research and gaining as much knowledge as possible to report accurately about that area. Yeah, I also feel that, like, in the the restrictions of school and, like, the timing that we're given, sometimes it's hard for me to be able to get a source because I work with communities that, like, are already, like, overworked and it's I have to build a certain time of certain kind of trust and, like, Going in there and like saying, I might never publish what you're telling me is like, why would I tell a story if that's if you're never going to use it for anything? And so I've had to rethink, like, should I tell certain stories when the people that are already overworked are going to give all this time and never get anything out of it? And so that's like also uh, resonating with some of the things that Saima told me in that interview, because Briar Patch has a certain critique of who's an expert and who gets to tell their own stories. And that has a lot of things to do with 
um, the time that you have on your hands? It takes a lot of time to talk to a journalist and to tell your story to a journalist. It takes a lot of energy. Um, and people who are marginalized and already struggling to make ends meet, they often don't have that time and energy. Um, and they can't take that time out of you know their working day to to talk to a journalist about it. And so the de facto experts on everything become these white guys with all of this uh, disposable income and extra time. I think that the opposite is actually true. I think that the people with the most expertise are the people who um, have lived through something, not necessarily studied it. I agree with that 100%. I mean, who do you think is the best person to interview about this, like, a rural village in, like, Vietnam, let's say, a white dude with a PhD in Vietnamese studies or someone who's lived every single day of their life in that village having that lived experience? Yeah, it, I think it speaks to what Saima, like, described as deep and long-standing relationship with those yeah. communities. And it's not always very well harvested, like, uh, cultivated by uh, PhD people who might, like, have had very limited exposure to their field because that's what academia allows in many ways. Um, and so it's. I asked her to give m me more detail about how does that look, what is, like, a deep and long-standing relationship when you're a journalist, and how does she evaluate that as an editor? And so she gave me an example of... A story that was about sex workers and sugar babies and she explained to me what were the challenges in that story. With this story it's difficult also because especially when you're writing about criminalized communities you don't necessarily want to ask the person who's pitching you whether or not they're engaged in this activity and so Sometimes you have to find other ways to reassure yourself that this person is the best person to write the story. So in that case, I talked to the writer and they sort of basically gave me a lot of evidence that they had a long-standing and close relationship with sex workers in Montreal and that they were in fact the best person to tell this story and that it wasn't simply that they had relationships with sex workers but that they'd done other work like sexual violence prevention work adjacent to the story about sex work that they were telling and so they had sort of a holistic they had like a scaffolding of knowledge and of experience and relationships that I thought could support the story and a lot of the time when I got pitches about sex work from non-sex workers that's not, that scaffolding wasn't there in those situations it it doesn't matter at the end whether the journalist outs themselves um, as a sex worker or isn't a sex worker, what does matter is that the story is told well because it had that scaffolding of knowledge and community and being accountable to, to the community that, that that person is reporting on because the relationships that that writer had with sex workers would endure after the story had been told in Briarpatch. Yeah, um, this makes me think of my professor, um, the old-timey journalist, who thinks that an outside perspective um, could actually be better because you're sort of this quote-unquote translator to the quote-unquote public. White people. Yeah, but my response to him, based on what Simon is saying, is that you need this these knowledge, this connection, some sort of relationship, some sort of expertise in order to report on the subject accurately. 
Yeah, I think Briar Patch would never, definitely not agree with like the idea that anyone can tell a story as told by a professor, but they do tell a sort of variation of that. Um, but they see that more as a remedy to like or like a short term remedy to a situation in which structurally, systemically, people are are excluded from telling their own stories. Yeah, like in an, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be these economic barriers, poverty, racism, uh, nepotism, which is huge in journalism, um, that are preventing people uh, to get a journalism training and to be empowered and tell their own stories. If I was going to wait for a maquila worker in Honduras to come to Briarpatch and pitch us a story about how Gildan, a Montreal corporation, is mistreating workers in its factories, then I would never get that story because of the extremely tangled web of... Um, imperialism and capitalism and systemic impoverishment um, that has made it so that certain people are structurally unable to access venues to tell their stories and to tell them to a wide audience. When it comes to what stories certain journalists shouldn't tell, it's about, it's about power and it's about money. So there for me the question is, is there someone from the community who could, who could tell that story just as well or better? And could I pay them for it also? Um, you know, who is materially benefiting from this story being told? Is it just going to advance the career um, of a white cishet journalist dude? Or is it a story that needs to be told by a white cishet cishet journalist dude because there's no capacity within the community itself for anyone in that community to write this story themselves but that it's a story that needs to be told in order for someone to pay attention to this and um, affect the material change that will make this community safer. Yeah I find that super interesting because Briar Patch is thinking through who is the best person to tell the story but they do this um, not just relying on identity like this is not a like if you're trans you have to, you can tell a trans story or if you are not trans you can tell a trans you can't tell a trans story uh, but it's about who's the most qualified who is who has the best ties to the communities and lived experiences and that does overlap with identity and that's part of the computation but it's not just about it's not restricted to identity yeah absolutely and and sometimes you know especially if it's an extremely vulnerable community a very highly criminalized community uh, undocumented for example People could be putting themselves in danger by going out and telling their own stories. And it's an unfortunate necessity that there has to be someone from, you know, who is not in their position who has to tell that story. But I think um, the it could be on publications could follow Briar Patch's lead and uh, choose journalists who have at least some sort of relationship. OK, maybe if you're not undocumented yourself, do you have friends or family who do? And this is, again, to repeat what, to echo what you said, it's not just about um, identity purely, but it's about that you have, you've lived, you have some connections, you have, you've lived through some of these things in a way that having a PhD in them can never, can never grasp. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this tendency across all practices of research and like creating knowledge of like glorifying people who go to communities that are not a part of. And I think we should rethink that of like, why is there, why do we give so much kudos to people who get into those situations? I mean, yes, they probably do some really intense work and like, I'm not like, I respect their work, 
Uh, but I think what's lacking from a lot of this glorifying is the fact that the reason why this exists in the first place is because people are so disenfranchised and so unable to tell their own stories because of poverty, because of racism, sexism, etc. So what do you think, for the New York Times story, what do you think could have been done differently? First of all, I, I wish that they had like looked for an indigenous like Inuit person to tell their own story. Um, but if they hadn't, like... They just should have like spent more time. Like a lot of the things that you pointed out were just like flat out false, and you just could have spent a little bit more time in the community to find that out, or just ask. Like some things sound like you could have just asked, "Why are people biking after a certain time?" Um, yeah, like a lot of things are just like basic fact checking that's not happening. Um, but like, I feel like we're being suspicious that like this basic fact checking, the reason why it was not done, it was maybe also, we could never prove that, but like it's it's tied into this sense that like there's a disregard for what this community think or what this community, like how it lives and their, their voice in the story. Because that's what's being lost in translation in the end is like we hear the voice of this person who didn't do basic fact checking and we're again excluding indigenous people from telling their own stories. Absolutely. And like the New York Times response to the criticism they got was, oh, she spent two weeks there. It's like she spent two weeks there, but there were people living there their entire lives. Right. And it's and it's it's simply it's simply not enough. And like you said, like she could have at least done her damn research, you know, and actually talk to people and ask questions and try to really insert all of those perspectives in there. So. I think all of that could be taken into an account looking forward going into another situation like that. Yeah, and I think there's something to rethink also about the way journalists receive criticism. Like, of course, there are some stories where it's like really bad and you're just like, you should just have written this so completely differently. But there's also space sometimes to be like, actually, this story might be true. You might have done your work and you might have done your fact checking, not talking about the New York Times story. Um, you might have done your work, but you can still receive criticism because you're like still excluding some voices. And I think journalists can do some work on getting better at receiving that criticism and also realizing that they are individuals and that they have individual perspectives on um, on the subjects they take. Like although they do try to be exhaustive, in the end of the day, they're just one person, right? Um, and so it would be nice that like they have this sense that like there are things that are bigger than them, and there are things that are playing against them in a way that may, they not might be aware of. And it's okay to realize after writing your piece and after it's being published and criticized on social media or wherever that you might have missed a point, you know, and. If you're actually dedicated to your topic, to the article you've written, maybe that means coming back to your subject and doing another reporting piece or making sure in your next piece is about the community that you pay attention to these like holes in your previous reporting. Absolutely. And I think that the, la the last thing I'd say on that is that ties back into uh, uh, Simon the Briar Patch's question about why are you writing this article? Are you doing it so you could put it on your LinkedIn or you're doing it because you genuinely care about this community that you're writing for? And you want to report their stories accurately and you want to uh, bring their truth into the world. Right. And to do that, we have to consider how how are we going to do that? Yeah. And I feel like somehow this gets exacerbated by the current political economic 
in the economic cli- climate where like there's such a limited staff that like journalists are parachuted all across a huge geographical area and so that you have those situations where people just have to go into communities for just two weeks or like two days or whatever to just do this reporting and get out and we'll never talk about this community ever again and so it's like in this current economic climate it's hard to put in place i still believe though that we could have done like she could have done a better job especially like two weeks is still like a lot of time i feel like most <laughs> newsrooms actually don't have that much time to report on something so i feel like she could have done a much better job than most people would have and you know she just she didn't have she didn't have to directly quote anybody she, but she could have at least talked to the national association of Amer- native american journalists and at least gotten their opinion on it you know got like at least intake their perspective like you know that she could that would have been the bare minimum right yeah or like local indigenous groups and like community organizers and community builders okay do you want to leave it at that or do you want to do I think comment? I think we think we covered it yeah. I think we can switch to the SAMR part of this podcast okay. I have this this is for our Patreon supporters. Um, this is a preview. If if you if you like what we're doing, this content, um, please please support us on Patreon, and we can give you the the full ASMR special. Actually, we don't have a Patreon, but if you could share this with your friends, <laughs> that's a good start. Uh, thank you for Quip Toothbrush for sponsoring us on this on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone who's listening to us. Share it. Talk to your friends about it. DM your mother about this episode, and. That's a wrap. This was The Bias. I'm Arno. I'm Gus. And we'll see you next time. The Bias. The Bias. The Bias. The Bias.